wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and as always, we're so glad you can join us for the next hour. Uh, This is an opportunity for our friends who are listening to uh, call. And if there's an issue in your life that you'd like biblical counsel on or a question as you study the word of God that maybe we could help answer again locally. The number is 843-525-1859 for the Internet users. And we are broadcasting through the Internet around the world. We have a toll free number. It's an 877 number. The call letters WAGP 980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio and the email address is tbl for the bible line at wagp.net rick as always it's great to be here and back today and so let's go ahead and get started i think we already have our first caller waiting we do indeed thanks for holding good morning you're on the bible line god bless you how y'all doing today good thank you how can we be of help um, Pastor, I was concerned about uh, John the fact that I've heard people talk about when Mary uh, touched Elizabeth that the baby leaped. So they think that, you know, John the Baptist was born sinless like Jesus, like he was born you know, through the Holy Spirit. So I want you to bring clearly on that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Let me see if I can respond. Uh, Luke's Gospel gives uh, the most definitive account of John the Baptist. Of course, it was prophesied in the Old Testament in both Isaiah 40 and the book of Malachi that the Messiah would have a forerunner. And that forerunner uh, was indeed John the Baptist. He was the one that Isaiah and Malachi predicted would come and prepare the way for the coming of Messiah, to prepare the people to say uh, he's coming. And um, indeed he did. So we read here, In Luke's gospel, in the first chapter, the events that transpired that led to the birth of of the Lord Jesus, of the Christ, or we'd say in Hebrew, the Messiah. And God prophesied uh, by the angel Gabriel when she came. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, hail favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, and he gives a series of prophecies. And behold, you will conceive in your womb. Prophecy number one, indeed she did. She will bear a son. Indeed she did. Her firstborn was Yeshua, Jesus, a boy. And you shall name him Jesus, which she did. Uh, He will be great, uh, the fourth prophecy. Uh, And indeed he was. Uh, He's the best known person in all of humanity. He will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. So there's eight prophecies here, five that were literally fulfilled, three that are yet to be fulfilled. You know, there's a lot of people today who speak of replacement theology, that the church has replaced uh, Israel and that God has no future for Israel and how wrong they are. Because all of the prophecies concerning the first coming of Messiah were literally fulfilled. And so we can expect for the second coming of the Messiah. Jesus has never sat on the throne of David. That was a promise recorded in 2 Samuel 7 that is yet to be fulfilled. He's sitting next to his father's throne in heaven but not on the throne of David, but someday he will, he will come back. Zechariah 14 literally says to the Mount of Olives and he'll rule and reign from the city of Jerusalem for a thousand years. But reading on it says, and Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. For that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth, has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who is now barren is now in her sixth month for nothing will be impossible with the Lord. And then Mary said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed. Now at this time, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to the city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it came about when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice saying, blessed among women are you and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Speaking of the one that Mary was carrying, Jesus. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that, sh that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. So here's Elizabeth. She speaks a prophetic word. Uh, she obviously knew uh, what God had affirmed. Uh, to Mary, how God revealed that precisely, we don't know, but she obviously knew it because she said, you have believed what God has promised, what God has spoken to you. So God had revealed that to her and God in many portions and in many ways uh, would give direct revelation to different servants. But remember, God had made a promise earlier in this chapter uh, to uh, John the Baptist's father that uh, he would indeed with his wife Elizabeth conceived conceive and that uh, this baby would be filled with the spirit from his mother's womb. So God gave John the Baptist an ability and a recognition by the Holy Spirit, not by my, but my, by my power says the Lord of hosts. And he had the ability even as a baby, which by the way, reminds me that John the Baptist is not a blob of tissue. The spirit of God does not fill blobs of tissue. He fills people. God views uh, little babies in the womb as people. And John the Baptist was a person. In fact, the word that is used to describe the baby brephos, uh, it's translated baby while in the womb is the same word that is used in the Greek New Testament after the baby is born. But was John sinless? No. Um, are, are you sinless? Am I sinless? No. Can we be filled with the spirit? Yes. So the fact that he's filled with the spirit doesn't say anything about whether he's a sinner or not a sinner. In fact, the rest of scripture reveals that John the Baptist, like all people, are sinners for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No exceptions except Yeshua 
whose um, conception came without a human father, even Mary, uh, in what we read in the verses that follow right after uh, Elizabeth uh, gives this affirmation after John leaps in her womb for joy and that Mary had believed, Mary then says, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. Even Mary was a sinner. So our Catholic friends teach what's called the immaculate conception. Now we as evangelical Bible believing Christians would affirm that to Jesus, that he was immaculately conceived without a human father because the Holy Spirit overshadowed the womb of the Virgin Mary and took his eternal deity and added to it perfect sinless humanity. So when that term is used by an evangelical, we're speaking of Christ, but the Roman church uses it also to speak of Mary, that Mary was sinless. And yet Mary recognizes that she is a sinner. My spirit rejoiced in God, my savior. She recognized that she herself needed a savior. You only need a savior if you're a sinner. So there's only one who has ever been born who was sinless. And that's Jesus, not John the Baptist, not Mary, not anyone else, only the Lord Jesus. John was a great person. In fact, uh, of John the Baptist, Jesus will say there was never a, um, a person born of a woman greater than John. Uh, but then he will say, he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John because John the Baptist dies before the fulfillment of the new covenant. And though he was one of those old covenant saints, those old Testament saints who had a special relationship with the spirit of God, he didn't have the same relationship that we have post Pentecost because uh, Jesus said, look, when I depart, I will send the spirit. And there's a new age that is initiated because of the blood that was shed there on Golgotha. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Ezekiel spoke of this coming day because their sins would be forgiven, which didn't happen. And in the real truest eternal sense until Jesus died on the cross. And because of that, I will send my spirit within you. Ezekiel uses the phraseology. I'll take your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. We have a unique relationship that even the greatest of all the Old Testament saints whom Jesus designates to be John the Baptist didn't have, though he himself had a special relationship with the Spirit of God. So uh, it's a great question you ask, good one to ponder and think about. Uh, you let the scripture interpret the scripture and it becomes very clear how to respond to your question. Good. Uh, let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. Very good. We uh, had a first uh, caller that dictated their question. They'd like to know how you would respond to an unbeliever who says, I don't believe he'll ask me that. When a Christian poses the question, what would you say if Christ asked you why to let you into his heaven? And that being the case, which direction would you then take the conversation? Well, I would probably agree with the, um, with the person. And I'd say, well, you're right. Technically, God would never ask that. But let me tell you why I am asking this. Because the Bible is very clear for the believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And it's equally clear in Luke's gospel where Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, one who dies and goes to Abraham's bosom, an Old Testament metaphor for heaven, and the other dies and he goes to, uh, to Hades. And uh, it's found in Luke 16, 19 through uh, 31. Some would say it's not a parable, that it's an actual event. Uh, it doesn't change the meaning of it because the theology is static. Uh, but if indeed it is a parable, 
uh, it's the only parable that has a named person in it. In either case, the Bible is very clear that for the unbeliever at the moment of death, he is absent from the body, but he's not in heaven. He's in a place of torment and certainly not a place where God wants us to go when we die. So uh, the scripture is clear that in that respect, God wouldn't really ask you this question. Uh, but what I would say to that individual is, well, the reason I am asking it is because I'm tr just trying to discern what your understanding is as to how a person would get to heaven. So you could rephrase it and you could say, well, well, let me ask you this from your exposure to Christianity at this point in your life. What do you think the Bible teaches is the way a person is accepted into heaven. So again, you're, you're, you're getting basically at his theology. That's what you're trying to get him to respond to. You're trying to help him to see what do I really conceive of as the way of salvation. And Jesus said, the mouth speaks that which is in the heart. So what he says really is a reflection of what he really believes. And so in that sense, the question can be uh, very, very helpful. But I, w I would say, well, you're right. In the true sense, God won't ask that because the Bible is very clear. The moment you die, um, you, uh, your decision uh, in terms of what you made in this life has already been settled. Uh, there's not a second chance. It's appointed for a man to die once. And after this comes the judgment. You don't have time after death to make a decision. It's settled the moment you die. So you're either in heaven or hell. But from your understanding of biblical of the Bible, what do you think the Bible teaches is the way you get into heaven? And again, you'll get the same answer. He might say, well, I think if you're basically a good person and you try hard or or they might bring in God. Well, I think you have to believe in God and live a good life. Neither of those answers will make it according to the Bible. Typically, when you ask a person that question, however you phrase it, you know, what do you think you'd have to do to get into heaven? Or, um, you know, why should God let you into heaven? Or from your understanding of the Bible, what do you think is the way to secure a place in eternity in heaven when you die? Same question, just ask different ways. They will give one of four answers. Either I don't know, which tells you right off they're lost when they say, well, I have no idea what I would say. Then in Jesus's terms, they're like a sheep without a shepherd, or they will give an answer of good works. And if you wrote that into a mathematical equation, if they say, well, I do so-and-so and I don't do such and such, they're basically saying, I hope my good works will equal salvation. And Paul said in Galatians 2.21, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Um, the paraphrase translations render it something like if a person could be saved by his good deeds, then there was no need for Christ to die. Uh, if you could become righteous in God's sight by your deeds, then Jesus would not have had to have died. He could have just come to earth and taught us how to live. And yet the whole theme of the Old Testament is that when the Messiah comes, he's going to die. He'll be pierced through for my iniquity. Uh, Jesus is very clear that his life was not taken away from him, John 10, that he gave it by his own authority that he had authority to lay it down and he had authority to take it back up. The third answer people give is, well, I believe in God plus, plus something. I've been baptized, plus I go to church, plus I'm a good person, plus I keep the golden rule. And according to the Bible, that answer would not make it either. And by the way, that third equation, belief in God or belief in Christ, plus the good works I do will equal salvation is the official position of the Roman Catholic Church. It's what the Protestant Reformation was over. 
Is a man saved by grace alone through faith alone or do good works help contribute to salvation? And the Roman response at the Council of Trent that was reaffirmed at Vatican I, Vatican II is that good works help save. Where the Protestant response was, no, good works are just the fruit of salvation. The problem with that answer, again, is twofold. Number one, it's saying, Lord, when you died, you didn't do enough. You didn't completely pay for my sin debt. I have to help you out by the good things that I do. And yet he shouts from the cross to telestai. It's a first century financial term that meant paid in full. Number two, it really doesn't square with the way God sees you. When a person brings good deeds as a reason for God lighting them into heaven, even if it's only one single good deed. And there are groups that add baptism or something else to what the Bible says Jesus completed on Golgotha. That is a, a denial of our sinfulness. Now we can bring something to God by which we can claim a righteous act that makes us righteous. And the Bible is very clear. God either saves us all by himself without any help from us, or he doesn't save us at all. Uh, no, there has to be a point in the life when the person says good works don't save. They don't even help save. Then you're really calling yourself a sinner to people who thought that human effort could help make it. Jesus said, it's not those who are well that need a physician, but those who are sick I didn't come to save the righteous. I'd put the word righteous there in quotes, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. He wasn't saying that some people are righteous and therefore don't need salvation. His point to the Pharisees was they didn't see that they were unrighteous. And just like you only go to a doctor when you're sick, you only come to a savior when you can't see, when you see that you can't save yourself. So the biblical equation would look something like faith in Christ alone equals salvation plus good works. That good works are the fruit, the evidence of conversion. And I would underscore that in our day because there's a lot of people who are raised in evangelical churches who know the plan of salvation. And because they know the plan of salvation, they think they know the man of salvation. And they can tell you, well, it's not by human effort. It's not by deeds. I had someone recently that I was sharing the gospel with, and they articulated those very facts, though they had been living with someone they weren't married to for a decade and yet claimed to be born again. Well, look, a Christian can fall into any kind of sin whatsoever. But the scripture says in Galatians 5, when it gives a litany of sin, which would include adultery and fornication, that those who practice such things, those who live like this, have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. If this is what marks my lifestyle, then I don't have the fruit, the evidence that I've genuinely been converted. Because when conversion takes place, when we admit our spiritual bankruptcy and we put our faith in the gospel, and what is the gospel? Well, in three words, it's death, burial, and resurrection. Paul said, I made known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you. And then he said, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died, he was buried, he was raised. So the gospel, which Paul is of first importance made known, was that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. And that's important because the gospel, Paul says, is what saves you in First Corinthians 1, uh, 15 and verse 2. He says in Romans 1, 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So good deeds, biblically speaking, are just the fruit and evidence of conversion, but they are real evidences because when you believe the gospel, 
when you come in spiritual bankruptcy and you put your confidence in Christ alone, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. And this kind of gets back to our first question that someone asked concerning John the Baptist. You're a new creation because you're born from above. You must be born two times to enter the kingdom of God. But this spiritual birth doesn't take place until forgiveness is made real and forgiveness cannot be made real until you put your faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. Then God credits you with his righteousness. It's called justification. He implants the spirit in you. That happens at the moment of conversion in your new person. And so when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, your life changes. And if your life hasn't changed, then you just don't have the genuine item. So um, anyway, um, I hope that would help in how you'd respond to the person. But those are good questions you should ask, you know, um, before uh, the Kennedy questions, as they're often called, though they're not original with James D. Kennedy. Uh, actually, um, there was a man, Charles Fuller, who used to use that question. If you were to die and God said, why should I let you into heaven? It, you know, what would you say? Uh, that was actually the first sermon that D. James Kennedy, once the pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, and once a great church, uh, listened to when Charles Fuller came on the radio Bible hour. He was one of the first great evangelical preachers on the radio. And he said it was the first sermon I ever listened to. He had my attention. Um, I, I rephrased the question when I was on staff with Campus Crusade and I put it on the scale of zero to 100. And a lot of people use that today when I did all the evangelistic training for Campus Crusade staff. Uh, there's a lot of ways to ask it. We used to say, hey, if someone came from the planet Mars and they said, I don't know anything about Christianity and how do you get into heaven? Um, you know, now that may not be the best question because it assumes life outside of Earth, which I think the Bible mitigates against. But still, you're getting to the same root issue. What is their theology? You see, everyone has a theology. The word theos is the Greek word for God. And so theology is your knowledge of God. Even the atheist has a theology. He claims there is no God. The agnostic has a theology. He says, I don't know if there's a God, but everyone has a theology. The question is, is it a biblical theology or is it one that you've conceived in your own mind, wherever you got it from? Very good. A uh, number of questions have come in. One uh, caller would like you to give scripture that proves that the Holy Spirit is male, not female, and wants to know why do some people believe the Holy Spirit could be female? Well, you know, there's a lot of, there's a movement today, um, the egalitarian movement, which basically uh, tries to diminish the male-female distinctions that God makes in the Word of God. Um, and so they want to make God a, a female, but when God reveals himself, he reveals himself as a male. Even when God incarnated himself, he didn't come as a woman. Um, you shall bear a son. We just read from Luke chapter one. Uh, Jesus was a male. Uh, I am teaching a course on pneumatology. It comes back up again next week, a week from tomorrow. Uh, it's pneumatology. Pneumatos is the Greek word for spirit or wind. Um, when we are using it in reference to the Godhead, we're speaking about the third person of the Trinity, God, the spirit. And one of the things that we've done in this course so far in pneumatology is we've dealt with the uh, personhood and deity of the spirit. That the spirit is a person. You should never call him an it. Uh, he's not an it. He's a him. 
and I'm using a masculine pronoun because that's how he is revealed in the word of God. He's revealed as a, a person. Um, God reveals himself in male form. Uh, that's not to diminish femaleness because of uh, Corinthians 11 affirms it. In either case, if, if you just want one text and I go through just a, a dozens of passages and if you go to search the scriptures.org and click on the course that we're offering right now in pneumatology, I think we spent about 10 weeks just demonstrating one that the Holy Spirit is a person and but proving he's a person doesn't prove that he's God. Um, but nonetheless, it's important that you understand that he's a person. He's not a force. He's not a power. He's not a, a, a bird. Uh, he's not a ghost. He is a person with all the attributes of personhood. He demonstrates intellect, emotion, and will. But he's also God. He, we refer to him as God the Spirit. And I go through dozens of passages uh, that affirm the deity of the Spirit. But just one that I would read to you, um, if you remember the occasion, it's recorded in Acts 5, a certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So one, there is a clear affirmation that he is God. Um, and then when you come to first Corinthians chapter 11, uh, where you find a, um, a number of passages that affirm how the Holy Spirit works. Uh, and what, by the way, one of the things that I do in my course on pneumatology is I go through uh, the passages on personhood. And it's interesting because typically when you are dealing with the Holy Spirit in scripture, pneumatos is a, a word that in, in Greek, um, I should say just parenthetically here, every uh, noun has a classification, male, female, um, or neuter. And we do that to some extent in English, but we don't have, um, we're not what we call a case language. There are certain languages in the world that are a case language. By case language, we mean that the endings of a word determine, for instance, what case the noun is in. Is it a, is it a male noun? Is it a female noun? Or is it a neuter noun? And now we have to do it by implication in English. So typically we call a boat a she. But uh, technically a boat is neuter. It's not either he nor she, it's neuter. But sometimes we will refer to cities with the pronoun she or to boats with the pronoun she. And we classify certain nouns as masculine or feminine. Well, Greek does that. And uh, it does it in such a way that there's no question in reference to uh, what, uh, what the gender of the noun is. But what's interesting, when Jesus speaks of the coming of the Spirit, it says, but I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, he's referring to the Holy Spirit, shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world 
of sin, righteousness, and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the father and you no longer behold me and concerning judgment because the rule of this world has been judged. Now, how does Jesus refer to him? And then he goes on in verse 13, but when he masculine pronoun, the spirit of truth comes, he masculine pronoun will guide you into all the truth. For he will speak on his own initiative. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He shall glorify me. He shall take of mine. Again, we could look at dozens of passages that attribute male pronouns to the spirit of God. But it is interesting because you would expect the uh, word pneumatos to be modified by a neuter pronoun because it is a neuter word. But Jesus makes it very clear that the term pneumatos should be modified with a masculine pronoun because he's not speaking of a force or a thing. He's speaking of a person equal with the father and equal with the son. But if you want to do a very in-depth study, go to searchthescriptures.org, click on the tab on pneumatology. And in the first session, which we have just completed, uh, you can do that study. And I invite you out on Wednesday nights as we continue our series on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. All right, let's go to the next one. Very good. Uh, we do have another question that has come in here. Uh, we've had a couple of questions that address how Christian young adults deal with life situations. First, how does a mother counsel her Christian daughter who believes that yoga is the best exercise for her when her mother knows there are spiritual beliefs contrary to Christianity that are connected to yoga? Well, that's a great question. And what you're really training your teenager to do is to more and more uh, find out what pleases God. Now, there's a presupposition that you know, your child wants to please God. And if your child has not been regenerated by the spirit and you're trying to get them to live a Christian life, it's impossible. Uh, I was speaking on Sunday evening and someone was kind of sharing their testimony with me of how they were trying to live the Christian life without being a Christian. I said, yeah, you know, it's pretty hard, isn't it? It's impossible. It's like uh, my toaster one day in the kitchen, I put the bread in and put the dial down and turned it to dark. But what's wrong with this thing? And then I noticed it wasn't plugged into the wall. And so it is with uh, the Christian life. Many a parent is trying to get an unregenerated teenager to obey God when they haven't been born again. Until you're born again, you don't have the mind of Christ. When you are born again, you receive the mind of Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2. And the mind of Christ is a new capacity, unlike a natural man that he had just commented on who does not understand the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. When you become a spiritual man, you receive the mind of Christ. You have a new ability, because if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation to understand and comprehend and absorb spiritual truth that you didn't have prior to conversion. And so number one, you want to make sure your daughter, your son is born again. And sometimes, you know, a child can know all the right answers, but they don't give the evidences of a heart and a desire for God. And it's possible that they're out of fellowship with God, in which case you want to teach them how to walk in the spirit. And you might want to go to my website, searchthescriptures.org, and listen to one of the key messages that we highlight there. Have you made the wonderful discovery of the spirit-filled life? 
because while he may be indwelling the individual, doesn't necessarily mean that he's filling the individual. And so one of our uh, goals as parents is not only to introduce our children to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but also to teach them the principles on how to walk with God and how to be consistently filled with the Spirit. It's far easier to raise a regenerated child in one who is filled with the Spirit than one who is not regenerated or one who is regenerated and not filled with the spirit. So we want to teach our children how to be filled with the spirit. And that's one of the reasons we have the discovery class at community Bible church. And a number of those lessons are online at search uh, titled under the back to basic series. So about 30 of the 45 weeks that we send every new Christian to uh, the discovery class, about 30 of those weeks are online and that would be a great study. And one of those weeks is, have you made the wonderful discovery of the spirit filled life? In either case, remember it's an issue of authority. You know, I, I went with a, a group of men recently on a boat ride at Fripp. Uh, some guys wanted to, um, start a new Bible study and they said, pastor, we're going to invite a lot of our unchurched friends and, uh, bring them out on the boat and we want you to share the gospel with them. And then we're going to invite them to a Bible study that we're going to host down there in Fripp. And I said, wonderful. I'd love to come. And uh, one of the gentlemen came up to me during the boat ride and he said, you know, pastor, I've got this uh, son who is a uh, homosexual and he's got his homosexual friend. And, you know, my pastor says it's okay. And, you know, what do you think? And I said, well, it comes back to the introductory comment I made, which I made before I shared the plan of salvation. I said, I'm not here today to prove uh, the Bible is the word of God, though I start with that presupposition. And if you want me to help you with that, I have a little booklet, how to prove the Bible is true uh, that you can get on Amazon. I don't make any money on it. So I'm not here peddling books today. Um, but I said to him, it's an issue of authority. And I reminded him, I said, again, remember everything you believe is based on something. You either made it up or you read it in a book or someone told you, but just believing something doesn't make it true. You can believe with all your heart that Jesus was just a man, but you would be wrong. He was more than a man. You can believe with all your heart that two plus two equals five. You can be very sincere about it, but you'd be sincerely wrong. And so I would say to your daughter, Honey, look, everything you believe is based on something. So the question we want to ask is yoga pleasing to the Lord. And you're absolutely right, mom. Um, it is uh, associated with mystical practices. And so some Christians would come back and, and again, you could do your research and you'd have no problem documenting that in terms of the origins and the uh, issues behind yoga. You'd have no problem in documenting that to your daughter. But the way some people will come back and they'll say, well, you know, uh, I'm not into the uh, the Eastern mysticism side of it. I just want to practice it as a Christian. And so then there's another fundamental issue that you want to ask. Uh, let's just say for the sake of argument, your daughter says, well, I'm a born again Christian and I want to go to a yoga class. I know they're practicing Eastern uh, mysticism, but I'm not because I'm born again. I just want to go there for, you know, the exercise or whatever. Well, the Bible says abstain from every appearance of evil. Some things may not necessarily be evil. And I'm not saying that you can practice yoga in a Christianized way, but look, I am saying this. If you go to some yoga class and yoga is rooted in Eastern mysticism, then you are giving a subtle endorsement to something that is evil. 
and there are people who are there who believe with all their heart, I've met them, uh, the principles of yoga. And it's antithetical to the word of God. So some things may not be evil, but they have the appearance of evil. And God tells us to abstain from everything that even looks evil. Why? Because it can call into question, one, your testimony, and two, your theology. So again, what you want to do, it's ultimately an issue of authority. And you don't want to say, well, I think it's a bad idea for you to practice yoga. What you want to do is go back into the scriptures, one document, what does yoga really teach? And that's no mystery. And number two, if this is what yoga really teaches, then this is antithetical to the Bible. And if you're trying to practice yoga as a Christian, then you're doing what is displeasing to the Lord. And if you are trying to do yoga without practicing the spiritual principles behind yoga, then you are uh, taking on something that has the appearance of evil. So that's how I would approach it. Remember, it's an issue of authority. What does God say? Not what does mom say, but what does God say? And so as you move your kids through the teenage years, you're getting them to think for themselves and you hopefully are getting them to think biblically, to go to the scriptures, to ask, what does God say? And it takes all the mystery out of it then, because if, if God is um, on the throne of my heart, then I'm going to want to do what God says. All right, I hope that helps. Let's go to the next question. Indeed. As I said, there were a couple of youth-oriented questions, and a middle schooler came home and um, <clears throat> showed his mother a test he'd taken that had points taken off because it, it was a question about evolution, and he argued against evolution. The mom at first told him that he may have to just go along with the program if he wants to succeed in a secular school. Homeschooling is not an option for this family, but she's now feeling so convicted that she told him this. Uh, She would uh, really like your counsel on how to handle it. Well, you know, um, many times uh, people home educate their kids and then their kids go off to the university to get uh, some needed degrees to function in the world that we live in. And they have to tell the professor what they what he wants to hear. And it's okay to do that without compromising your beliefs. You can say, well, evolution teaches so-and-so. And And you can give an accurate rendition of what evolution teaches. Now, if the professor gives opportunity, you might also say, but I disagree with evolution, and here's why, and here's the creation model, and here's the model for scientific creationism, which I espouse to. You may not have that opportunity. He may not want to hear that. But without any, um, you know, contradiction of terms, you can say, you know, though I personally don't embrace evolution, this is what evolution teaches and your son and daughter can go on and then articulate what evolution teaches. Because if that's the nature of the exam, teach the basic, share with me as uh, the student, you know, five principles of why um, people embrace evolutionary thought. Or even if they phrase it, why we believe evolution to be true, then you could say, well, uh, though I personally don't embrace evolution, here's the five reasons that you're looking for why people believe evolution to be true. And you can still, therefore, articulate clearly your belief without compromising your biblical worldview. Um, You know, and, and I know that there's a lot of struggle in our day for people to uh, look at other alternatives. But 
again, I, I would encourage you to think through, there might be some ways in which you could home educate your child. I know people say it's not an option for me because they envision in their mind that they're going to be home all day for hours on end, uh, educating their kids. But look, we have single moms in our church who homeschool their kids and they do it in the evening and their kids are on a different schedule and you know, they make it work. Uh, so there's a lot of different ways to approach it as a general principle, uh, forget just the content of the government school system, which is becoming more and more and increasingly godless. I mean, it's, it's just wicked. It's just wicked. What is happening and the indoctrination? It's not an education. It's an indoctrination that they are doing in the government school system today. Uh, lay that aside. Um, there are other alternatives and lay aside the content. The socialization is so negative. You know, uh, it, to me, it's, it, it doesn't surprise me that we've had principals and assistant principals and administrators who are members of Community Bible Church and almost all of them have home educated their kids. Why? Because they don't want their kids in the government school system. They know how apostate it is and how far away from God it is. And they know what's going on. I mean, these kids are talking, you know, middle school. They're talking 24-7 about having sex. Um, you know, and unless your child is just unusual at 10 or 11 or 12, but most don't have the spine of steel that they need to stand up in that kind of godless generation yet, then you're giving your, your children to the wolves. So think through. There might be some ways that you can do it. But assuming you can't, and I, and I recognize there are some people who truly cannot, lay that aside, um, here, that's how I would ask your son or daughter, if he were mine, to respond to that question. So I hope that helps you. Very good. Our next listener has uh, the question of whether you have ever heard of a movement in the church called Inner Healing Prayer. She writes, I think it's also called Sozo. I don't know much about it, but the little I've heard about it, does sound odd. I googled it, but the website seems very vague. If you know what it is, can you please let me know? Also, if my church has an inner healing prayer ministry, is this something I should be concerned about? I may be overreacting, she writes, but something doesn't make me feel right about this. Well, you know, the scripture says that whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. And so sometimes, you know, I tell people, when in doubt, cut it out that if you have a check in your spirit, it may be that God, the spirit put that doubt there because he wants you to explore it further. And I think your doubts are absolutely founded. The word sozo is actually a Greek word that means to save. And so there's nothing wrong necessarily with the title. The word means to save or to deliver. Um, but again, when you study the history of it, I always tell people, you, know, you consider the source, consider the source. So the couple who started it, uh, Bill and Brenda Johnson, uh, they were, uh, they're both senior pastors, which tells you right off, um, we got a problem here. We, you know, he's a pastor, she's a pastor, they're co-pastors. So, you know, right off they're in violation of the scripture. So if someone is in clear violation of the scripture right off, are they in fellowship with God? No, they're not. And so they're not going to have the discernment that they needed. So this couple who invented Sozo healing or prayer and comes under different terms, you know, one, they're egalitarian in their theology. So they're rebelling against scripture, but also this couple was involved in a movement called Holy Laughter. I, I, I don't know if some of you remember that it, it was a movement that actually germinated in Florida. 
were in in Canada where they had these uh, laughter revivals where people would break out in uncontrollable laughter. Some would even bark like dogs and uh, just crazy, crazy, crazy stuff that's antithetical to the word of God. And so this couple comes out of that movement. So again, consider the source. Uh, you know right off that's got to be a, a little bit weird. But this, uh, this whole movement, the, the, the basic thesis behind it is it makes promises uh, that you can go back into your past and you are to go into some mystical trance where you dig up your past and you try to work through it and you're healed from it. it might be sexual abuse or whatever. And so they try to bring you through this mystical trance in order to experience inner healing. Look, where do you find that in the word of God? No, nowhere. How does God heal people with painful pasts? Not by, you know, going into some kind of a trance where, you know, uh, to me, what they're doing is very dangerous. I think it's borderline satanic, if not demonic itself. But where do you find that in scripture? You find no such model. So how does God heal from past hurts with a renewed mind? One, you have to be born again. So you have the mind of Christ. So first you introduce people to the Lord Jesus Christ, but then you begin to take them through scripture and you learn what God says about life. You learn what God says about forgiveness. You learn what God says about people who have violated you and hurt you and abused you or whatever the situation may be. But you don't go into some kind of psychological trance to find some kind of inner healing that will take place. And again, these movements... Uh, that have this kind of stuff are movements of serious spiritual deficit. There's something missing in those churches where they have to resort to such things. And usually it's a weak pulpit where a pastor is not opening and expositing the word of God. And so people are sensing a void, which makes them really open to uh, something else to fill that void. And it becomes really uh, tragic. So uh, you've got to check in your spirit. It's a legitimate check. It's an evil movement. And I would encourage your church to stay a million miles away from it. 843-525-1859. Toll free 877-WAGP980. If you have a question on today's Bible line. And in Genesis 1-2, it says the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. What was the job of the Holy Spirit before the earth was formed? Well, it's a good question. And um, by the way, this is what we are exploring now at Community Bible Church on Wednesday nights in our course on pneumatology. We're talking about the role of the Holy Spirit at different time frames. And we just cracked the door to the second sections. And we're going to start reviewing it again uh, a week from tomorrow. Um, but we'll talk about the role of the Spirit from creation to Bethlehem. Uh, from Bethlehem through the earthly ministry of Christ, from uh, Pentecost to through the church age, his role during the tribulation period, his ministry during the millennial kingdom, and what will take place in the future. Um, there's not a lot that's revealed to us about what happened in eternity past, but we know that there was counsel that took place within the Godhead. Cause remember God is not in time. He's in eternity. And so you read in the revelation three times over that in eternity past, so to speak before the foundations of the world, 
uh, God had planned what his son would carry out, that his son and the heart and mind of God was crucified even before the foundations of the world, that your name was written in the Lamb's book of life because an omniscient God knew who would respond to his general and specific revelation. But God was complete. He wasn't lacking anything. It's not like we're really lonely up here in heaven. So I think maybe we'll make men, man to make ourselves, you know, happier or more complete. No, no, nothing like that. So, um, but, you know, I could sit here and make up things in terms of uh, what he was doing, but it would be pure speculation on my part. And I wouldn't want to go beyond the bounds of scripture. The secret things, Deuteronomy 29, 29, are, may, are, are known to the Lord our God alone. There are some things that only God knows that we don't know. And people many times want to probe into those things that God hasn't revealed when what we should focus on is what God has revealed. And so what we will primarily do, like in our course on Deuteron- uh, on pneumatology, is we will focus on the things that God has revealed concerning the spirit. Because again, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that secret things belong to the Lord, our God, the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever that we may observe all the words of his law. So we want to focus on the things that God has revealed. That's where we want to camp as believers, not on the things he hasn't shown us. All right. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. I think we've got time for one more live caller. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Brogy. Morning. Hey, I was giving you a call. I know in this presidential election, I know you touch on it from time um in time past, and I know the theme is choosing between the two lesser evils, and just my own personal opinion, you know, I just feel that Donald Trump is a man that just does not have the qualities. I know he's not a pastor, but even when it's concerning coming to be the president of the United States and then Hillary with abortion and same-sex marriage, uh, I just wanted to get your take on this, Dr. Brogy. Brother, I appreciate that so much, and I'm with you a thousand percent. Uh, you know, both uh, candidates are not what we would like uh, as evangelical Christians to serve in the highest office of the land and one of the most powerful offices in the world. Uh, it is a very sad day that character no longer matters, and uh, unfortunately, that's where we find ourselves. And so there are some Christians who would say, you know, I just can't vote for Donald Trump. Uh, I'm just going to leave the ballot blank. Uh, The other two choices and the other two parties are equally weak. Um, So, you know, what do you do? Well, you know, some would argue that you vote for Trump, who is the lesser of two evils. Here's the thing with Hillary. We have no doubt where she stands in terms of the moral issues. And, you know, we're coming out of an administration that one of their hallmarks will be their promotion of what God calls an abomination both the president and the vice president. And it was initiated with the vice president, which then forced Obama to take position on gay marriage. And now he not only talks about gay marriage, but transgender lifestyles and everything else. And he's pushing it with executive orders and everything else you can imagine. That's his legacy. And we know that Hillary equally believes those same things along with abortion We know, too, that we've got three Supreme Court justices that are 77 years of age or older. And more than likely, the next president is going to replace three, maybe even four Supreme Court justices. Now, do I think so with Hillary? She's a known factor. 
Donald Trump says, well, I'm going to put conservative Supreme Court justices. I am now pro-life. You know, these other things. I I, I don't know. You know, to me, he's had no character change. Uh, I don't see any evidences of real genuine repentance. A guy who once himself affirmed partial birth abortion as a woman's right. I, I don't see any brokenness of heart. But with that said, uh, that doesn't mean that he couldn't uh, affirm those moral values. And, and if he's elected president, I hope he will. Here's the bottom line. I don't think for one moment as a born again evangelical Christian that our hope is in the president of the United States. If, uh, if Ted Cruz was elected president and he was more and we knew where he stood in terms of the moral conservative, you know, biblical values uh, it would change very little, except it would delay some things. If Hillary is elected and she becomes president of the United States and evangelicals help put her in office, then, you know, they shouldn't whine or grope or, or cry when, you know, laws start coming down on churches, on radio stations, because I guarantee the FCC is going to change some laws in terms of what can go over the airwaves. Uh, there's going to be a lot of issues, you know, things that we say, well, that's protected under free speech. Well, yeah, maybe, but maybe not. Um, things are changing so fast. But, you know, if we have laws that are going to go against Christianity and persecute Christians, we'll have no one to blame. I think at best, you know, Donald Trump is a gamble. Because he says he won't do those things. So it is a gamble. Does he have the character to back it up? Obviously not. He doesn't have the character to back it up. Uh, But it is a gamble. And at best, we can delay maybe four years uh, the evil that is going to come on our nation. And maybe there will be repentance between those two points. That's what we can do at best. We can delay it. But the only way for America to fundamentally change is for we as a people to turn back to God. And that's what we are not doing. We are raising our fists in the face of God Almighty saying, we don't need you. We don't want you. We won't teach of you in our schools as one mother obviously called in today and wrote about. We we don't want to acknowledge you as the creator of the world. So God gave us over to sensuality. And you think that would have brought us to repentance, but it didn't. And so God has given us over to homosexuality. You think that would have brought us to repentance, but it hasn't. And so God is now giving us over to a reprobate, a depraved and upside down mind where people are calling good evil and evil good. The only hope for America is repentance. And it must begin with the household of faith with a clear, vibrant testimony of people who are really born again and who are living distinctively different lives. It may not happen. This may be the terminal generation that Jesus spoke of that will usher in the second coming of Christ. But in the end, you have to vote your conscience. And um, it's an individual personal choice when you walk into that booth. We're out of time for today. Thanks for joining us. God bless you as you walk with Jesus Christ.